Confidence lives in the land of awkwardness. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Hannah Pryor joins the podcast this week, and Hannah is a workplace performance expert. And in this conversation, we discuss her new book, Good Awkward, and the importance of taking care of your mindset. And in other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So click the link in the show notes, scroll through all of their products, see which ones might work best for you and your wellness needs, and then at checkout, use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 199 of Something for Everybody. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashvitz. Henna, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Happy to be here. Yeah, me too. And so before we get into all the good stuff, I have a very important question to ask you, and that is, how are you doing? Like, actually, how are you doing? Actually, how am I doing? You know, the first, the first how are you is always the same answer, and it's anybody who asks it to me. I'm like, I'm good. I'm busy. You know, working mom, just launched a book. Things are chaos. Actually, how am I doing? Better today. I sprinted through the last week. You know, my book came out last Tuesday. I had a keynote in Denver. Then yesterday I was in Portland, Maine. The day before I was in Charlotte. So it was just a lot. And I'll just say that, you know, last night I got a really good night of sleep. And so despite knowing better, I probably extended myself a little too much in the last week and uh, wasn't giving my best to the people I care about. But I feel caught up, had a good cup of coffee this morning, uh, relaxing a little bit later today, and I feel good today. How are you? How are you, Aaron? I, I'm doing very well. Um, yeah, it's been a good week. Uh, we took some engagement photos because I'm getting married yeah. next year uh, in downtown Dallas on Monday. Those came out really nice. My fiance looks beautiful. I look okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, but yeah, things are really good. Uh, we're in the midst of fall baseball season, which is always exciting, yeah. and uh, MLB playoffs, which is always also exciting. Yeah, but yeah I'm, and, I'm, uh, I'm a Philly girl. Go Phils. It's Red October oh, right now. So <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. I love the Phillies. Big fan. Yeah. I'm hoping yeah. it's the Rangers and the Phillies in the World Series. But, I would love it. I would love yeah. it. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, yeah. But based on what you just said, I want to ask you this question, which is, are you more concerned about time management or energy management? Mm, this is always the age-old trade-off. And so my, my take is this. Time is something that we can manage only through the lens of priorities. You know, I, I really frustrate myself when I use this term, and I, I find myself a little impatient with others when they say, you know, I don't have time, I don't have time because we all get 24 hours in a day. I'm still trying to find the person that's figured out how to stretch to 25 or 26, right? We've got the same time allotment in a day and it's not, I don't have time. No one has more time than the next. It's just about how are we spending it? And so I, I subscribe to the, I don't have time translates to, I've chosen to make certain things a priority and other things not a priority, which is fine as long as we own that. And so I tend to find 
my time is spent better when I monitor my energy. So when I am running really hard, I lose clarity and it becomes very difficult for me to prioritize. So again, knowing that time doesn't stretch, all I can do is manage what's important to me and what my priorities are. When my energy is low, the clarity over what my priorities should be starts to fade away. I become very reactive. So energy management for me wins the day and it kind of by default takes care of the time piece. That's my experience. Yeah, I mean, I think you're 100% right. Uh, you know, because if you're not sleeping well or eating well, like, well, yeah, am I going to do the thing that I said that I was going to do? No, I don't mm -hmm. have enough energy in the tank to actually manage my time. Yeah. So the if I gave myself 90 minutes to get into deep work, but I'm too tired and I get distracted and I'm caught off this, then that turns into three hours and now my time is gone and I feel like I could have managed my time better, but it really boils down to my energy and how distracted I got or how good of sleep I got or the breakfast I ate or the cup of coffee I potentially had or the little mm -hmm. movement I did before I sat down at my desk to get myself you know, in a position to actually do the 90 minutes of work, which was scheduled into my time block so that at the end yeah. of the day, I'm actually done with my work. So my energy can be given to the other important relationships in my life, say your kids, your spouse, whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, but I, I agree with you. I bet, I bet in baseball, in baseball and in workplaces, right? The, when we're energy is depleted, our focus just stinks, right? And so it's that time management becomes an uphill battle. You can't focus well, you can't prioritize well. Uh, I felt this this week. I, I was running too hard. And the next time I had to do some critical thinking work, oh my God, I picked up my phone more than I think I ever do, right? I was squirrel. Like I just, I couldn't. And it wasn't because I didn't have the time. I had blocked out the time. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the stamina. So all these things, you know, we, we can't separate it all entirely, but I, I do think one really feeds the other. I agree with you. Yeah. And I, I, I do think there are times in our life where we, where we are going to go on that sprint like you are yeah. this past week, right? But yeah. I, but what I think our culture maybe has gone wrong, maybe in the personal development or sports world is that it's always, it's always grind, 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 grind. And yeah. don't get me wrong. I think working hard is a prerequisite for anything that you want to achieve in your life. But if you're doing a sprint your whole life, you're never going to have time to recover. So the hard work inside of the hard work has to be the allotted amount of time for rest and recovery. Yeah. So as you say, you can get to this sort of growth edge every single day. If I'm getting to the edge yeah. of my capacity every single day, then I have to recover just as hard so I can push those boundaries each and every day. But if I'm ignoring the fact that I need eight hours of sleep or I need nutritious food or I need to move my body, then my growth edge is not getting any farther. I'm not gaining any more capabilities or capacity. I'm just sort of losing yeah. my potential, I think. I agree. And I, I think I love the choice of language. You know, I do believe very much in no matter what sphere, whether it's athletics or, you know, my, my ball field is the corporate workspace. I think that we have to acknowledge that some people are marathoners and some people are sprinters. You know, some people really are successful in, you know, kind of a little bit every day consistently. Some people work better in bursts with different levels of recovery. You know, it's somebody who walks every morning at a slow pace versus people who focus on HIIT training a couple times a week, right? There's no right or wrong way of doing it. It depends what your goals are and your natural wiring. Whatever you're going to sustain is the one that fits you. I'm a sprinter. I know that about myself. I will sprint, 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 but then I have to rest. 
and you're exactly right. There have been moments, even though sometimes we just, we need to, where I've forgotten that after sprinting, you need the rest. And I have paid the price for that accordingly. So just that self-awareness yeah. is important. Speaking of sprinting, this is a great transition here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's um, do it. In the, in the high performance world, because I find this a lot in, in, with elite athletes, do you yeah. find that people are running away from something or running towards something, say running away from an insecurity or a lack of or running mm -hmm. towards a higher purpose or a mission? Yeah, uh, both, 100% both. And I will say that I can usually tell which one they're doing you know, pretty quickly in a conversation. And especially when I ask them, you know, what do you feel like at the end of the day? So people who are running away from something tend to collapse into bed at the end of the night. I'm exhausted. What a long day, right? They're just trying to keep up. They're trying to sustain a pace. But people who are running towards something, they still may have some fatigue, some tiredness, but they are generally, things are crazy, but they're smiling as they're saying it, right? They're energized by their work. They're energized what they're doing. Um, it matters to them. There's a goal. There's a carrot. I'll say that, you know, I have lived a life of career pivots. I've, I've made two 90 degree pivots and both previous careers, while they were good to me and I was materially successful or whatever that means, I found that I kind of played that proverbial game of I climbed the ladder only to be leaning against the wrong wall, right? I was running, I was running, I was running real hard. And then I got up there and I'm like, yes, this is like where I was headed. And then I looked around and was like, is this where I was trying to go? Like, what, what was I running towards? And so sometimes it's running away and sometimes it's just running aimlessly. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be a little bit of both of those things, but running towards something, being really clear on what you're running toward. I think those are the people that sustain long-term careers that are successful, long-term, you know, athletic careers that are successful. You need to have something that you're moving towards. It can't just be one or the other. Yeah. But that, that initial, <clears throat> um, sort of insecurity or lack has a ton yeah. of just activation energy, right? It's like the external yeah. motivator is the thing that gets you off the starting blocks and you need that. Yeah. And, and I don't think we can demonize that in, in terms of getting someone going because we can't get anywhere unless we start moving, right? Unless we have action. And so, yeah. but once you get to a certain position, you have to start to change that because you're going to reach a ceiling that's unsustainable. And then you're going to think, well, why is everyone passing me? I'm working just mm -hmm. as hard. Well, there's like these little inside tweaks that you haven't made that are just hindering your performance. Are you thinking neutrally? Like, do you yeah. have a, a post-performance reflection that's honest, but also not guilt and shame ridden and attacking you? Like, what are you doing at those moments when you've reached a really high level? It's gotten to you to a certain place. You know, it's like your edge, this chip on your shoulder, but then you get there and you're like, well, why am I not? Where's, where's the next peak that I can right. hit? And this is sort of where it lies in the way you talk to yourself and and things of that nature. Yeah, I love I love the way you broke this down and um you know one of my partnerships is with a company called Limitless Minds that focuses on mindset training. We talk about it as being for the corporate athlete, right? We've got our athletes that have mental conditioning coaches and we've got our corporate athletes, folks like sales teams and leadership teams that are running a similar race in a lot of ways. But what you described is exactly right. It's first of all those little tweaks that make the huge difference and I love what you said about the beginning about the activation energy. One of my Limitless Minds colleagues, Colin Henderson, has this expression, it's the start that stops most people, right? So assuming mm. they are ready to get off the block, but they've got all this fear, all this crazy self-talk about, are you ready? Are you good enough? 
I think one of the most important things we can do to become a high performer at the beginning of any new growth point or inflection point is to just untangle this self-talk as not all self-talk, even if it's slightly, you know, quote unquote negative is bad because every high performer is going to experience self-doubt. Everyone's going to have a fear of not getting it right, but we have to untangle, is it healthy self-doubt? So if I'm an athlete or if I'm a corporate salesperson, for example, healthy self-doubt is, well, I really want to do well in this. I haven't been in this exact situation before, but let me practice a little harder. Let me prepare a little more. Let me do a little bit more research. Let me, you know, up level and just over, over prepare, over ready myself so that I have a better shot at this thing. That's healthy self-doubt. That's self-doubt that's actually inspiring you to improve your performance versus unhealthy self-doubt is that voice gets so loud that you're like, you know what? I don't belong here. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm not going to go put, you know, put, put myself into that game. I'm not going to do whatever it is. That's unhealthy self-doubt. But when we start to put those two things together and say all, you know, kind of cursory self-talk is bad, it's not true. I agree with you. I think we need a little bit of it to put that little fire in the belly right at the beginning, then the rest of it becomes a sustaining game. And then we use those mental performance tools to help. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think of it sort of like anxiety, like any, anyone hears mm -hmm. the word anxiety, they immediately think, oh, that's bad. Well, right. not really. It's not mm -hmm. like it's just mm -hmm. a high arousal state. If I'm about to go into uh, a performance of any kind, I do feel high arousal. That's awesome. You know, yeah. what I do and what I say to myself to channel that high arousal is where it's most important. If I'm saying, yeah. okay, I'm excited, bring it on, let's go, let's rock, yeah. or like, fuck, 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 yeah, fuck, yeah, yeah, fuck, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> both, both are like high arousal, you know, but I'm yeah. not going to take a high arousal state and immediately change it to low arousal. I don't want to be in low arousal. I'm amped. I'm ready to go. Give me these right. juices. They're flowing. But how I talk to myself then channels that while I walk on stage or into the batter's box or into a sales call or whatever the case may be. And so yep. we want to have uh, that neutral thinking, like your, your friend, Trevor Moad, um, mm -hmm, was, was amazing, mm -hmm. amazing, amazing practitioner, uh, talked yeah. about so much. Yeah, no, Trevor, I think has done the world such a, a, a gift and a favor by kind of creating some language to describe what this feeling is of, you know, People hear neutral thinking, I think sometimes inadvertently mistake it to mean removing feelings from things. And that's not what mm -hmm. we're doing. You know, I, I think what you said is really key. You know, you want to care. I actually was running a session about executive presence with a group the other day. And I said, you know, for me, I look at nerves as care dressed in costume. You know, I, I hope every time I step on a stage, I've been on some big stages recently, which I'm very grateful for. And I got nervous. You know, the lights were really bright. There was a lot of people in there but I care. It's because I care. And if I ever feel zero nerves, someone come check on me because that means I've become indifferent. It, it mm -hmm. means I've become apathetic to the thing that I'm trying to do. And so I'm never here to engineer the feelings and nerves out of it where neutral thinking comes in handy. So, you know, for those that, that don't know, neutral is essentially, it's not positive or negative. You know, there's positive thinking and negative thinking. And then there's something that has no charge. It's objective. We're not grading it. We're not judging it. We're looking for the truth. We're looking for the facts. What is true right now? How can we just look at that and help us find the next right step? So getting to neutral helps take some of these bigger feelings that are threatening to hold us back, threatening to you know ruin our, our game in that particular moment, and gives us a strategy to call on lightning quick to move on to the next thing. And so often when I care about stuff, I'm, I'm calling on my neutral self-talk instead of 
you know, Hannah, this is going to be great, which doesn't always feel good when I'm very nervous. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. What I try to call on is neutral self-talk, right? Hannah, you've done this a million times before and have been successful. Even when you haven't had a perfect gig, you were able to learn from it the next time. Like, what are the facts and how can we start from that place? And that that is such a an empowering place to start because we can all get to that no matter what situation we're in. Yeah. It's amazing. The 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 field of mental performance, I think, is is really an important one because mm -hmm. What I'm trying to talk about is that mental health itself needs to be sexier and needs to be rebranded because yes. <laughs> no matter how much awareness we do about mental health, people will right. always consider that to be the person who's depressed or sad or crazy, quote unquote, don't like that word. But like that's what people think about when they think of mental yeah. health. And that's just not true. Mental health is just like how you think, feel, and act. Like that's just what it is. Now there's, mm -hmm. of course, there's branches of that that are like your sure. very severe conditions, which is not what we're talking about. We're talking about just every day. And so now that we see in the corporate world and in the sports world, people talking about mental performance or mental fitness, I think that just needs to be translated now into, into everyone, into schools, yeah. into little yeah. kids. Like it's just normal skills that we can learn like reading and writing. Okay, I'm about to give a presentation to my seventh grade class. Okay, how do I handle my nerves a little bit? Do, mm -hmm. I, do I learn how to breathe? Do I learn how to talk to myself? Like maybe we do a breath together as a class because everyone's about to present at some point. Like how yeah. I think just the, the importance of, of rebranding mental health to make it sexier, to make people want to like do the work about it, right? Because yeah. uh, I'm sure you run into this all the time. You ask people like yeah. how, how uh, much does mindset impact you? And I'm sure everyone tells you, oh, like so much. 10 out of 10, and, right. And then you would probably ask them, well, how much do you like practice it or put in the reps? And they're like, oh, like, like a little bit. Like not really <laughs> at all. Right. Yeah. I think I, I love what you said about the, the word choice too. I still remember, and I'll never forget this. I was working with one of, one of my therapists about something, you know, I, I believe in having a coach, a therapist, like all of it, right? Like I, I think everyone can stand to build their self-awareness. And I generally, you know, anyone who knows me and meets me will think, Hannah's this very kind of joyful, happy-go-lucky. I don't get down that easily. Like it takes takes a lot for me to get down. And so it really surprised me when my therapist once said to me, Hannah, you know you have a low hum of anxiety, right? And I and I'll tell you, and I'm not really proud of this, but I remember thinking, what? What do you mean? Like, no, I don't. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm a joyful person. I don't, I'm not an anxious person. I don't walk through life worried about the world. Like I'm not scanning for tigers in the woods. I know some people do like, I don't do that. So I almost, I'll be honest. I almost got like a defensive reaction to it. And then she said this next thing, which I'll never forget. Cause it still sticks with me. She said, Hannah, you're assigning a lot of meaning to that word. What I want you to think about is, are you always on? Mm. Are you always on? Are you always just ready to catch a ball, whether it's work, whether it's your children, whether it's your husband, whether it's like, I need to make a healthy meal. Like, do you consider yourself someone who's always on? And immediately I was like, God, yes. <laughs> right? Like, God, yes. And she's like, Hannah, you rarely allow yourself to go into full rest, right? Even when you're saying like your brain and your body is at baseline is resting, are you really? Like you're always on alert to catch whatever that next ball is. And when she said that, it totally reframed what 
I, I had attached in my mind to anxiety and anxiety, you know, it doesn't have to be, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about everything. It's also like this inability to level set to this baseline rest place. And when she called that out, I couldn't unsee that. I'm like, ah, oh, this is more than I think what we talk about. I think we need to redefine what these things mean. 100%. That's such a, that's such a brilliant way to put that. And it, it probably makes a lot of sense for a ton of people who are mm -hmm. always on. Yeah. Uh, and how can they, you know, I don't know if you can ever turn it off, but I'm sure you, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more than you currently do to actually get your body some rest. But that's, that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten better um, at it. It's a, it's a practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my fiance tells me all the time that I need to work less, but I'm like, I'm, this is like, this is who I am. This is what I like to do. I like, I, I feel, mm -hmm. you know, purposefulness, but it's true. Like I have to take my own advice. Like you were talking yeah. about at the very start, like we have to rest, we have to recover. We have to find time yeah. to experience joy and be with the people that we love. And all of these things are uh, additive, not subtractive. Yeah. That's what I've had to learn. Like they're additive to the ultimate goal or mission or whatever you're on. And I, I think that right. was an important sort of flip for me when trying to figure out that, yeah, I can go to bed at 930 because I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. Like, that's good. Eight hours of sleep. It's nice. Yeah, agree. Agree. So. And, I, and I will also just add to this that it takes practice to figure out how to enter that rest point, right? Like, I, I remember people were just, you know, shut off your computer, put your phone away and like close your eyes and meditate for five minutes. That was too big a leap from where I was at, from someone who was always on. It was very difficult to jump to that. So I remember one of my own coaches suggested, you know, that's too much for you right now. That's, that's a Herculean jump. Start by trying to just do one thing at a time, right? To find a stepping stone. So she would say, you know, go for a walk outside. Don't bring your phone, right? Or do something that requires both hands. You know, I'm not much of a knitter or anything like that. So uh, I started making risotto. Because if you've ever made risotto, you have to like constantly <laughs> stir it, right? Like you're, you're, you have to, your hands are occupied. My husband has an electronic drum kit in the basement. He does that, right? It's like, can you find something that is singularly focused that forces you to do one thing at a time and let that be a stepping stone to that restful place? Start by doing one thing at a time. Only then can you start to maybe develop the muscle to completely shut things off. But I appreciated the advice of don't don't jump to, you know, silent, isolated meditation because you're just going to find yourself frustrated, which was true. Every time I tried to meditate, I'm like, I stink at this, right? I would just get mad at myself and start this whole negative spiral of self-talk about how bad a meditator I was. So it's a, it's a freedom to know that there are layers to it that you can step into slowly to better your mental performance. Yeah. How have you, let's say, I don't know if convinced is the right word, but uh we'll say convince people into sure. start taking care of their mindset because they know it's important mm. uh, but they're not doing the reps set skills actions protocols that allow them to have this sort of limitless unbreakable mindset like what words do you yeah. use to try and get people there to know that it's important yeah i mean i'll just start by saying i every time i'm in a group session you know live or virtual with folks that we're doing this mindset work with i am the first one and i wish this was like be exaggerating I'm not exaggerating. I am the first one to raise my hand and say, I used to think this was a bunch of woo-woo crap. I did. Like mindset training. I worked in public accounting and staffing, which is, which is sales. It's like 100% commissionable job. That was the first 17 years of my career. If you told me you were going to have a speaker 
come in and talk about mindset training, I would have been like, snooze, I got stuff to do today. Like my email is piling up. True. Like this is not me exaggerating. I would have been like, this is woo woo fluff. What I had to come to learn for myself was that mindset training can look different for different people. And mindset training can be very action oriented. Mindset training does not mean you sit in a circle holding hands and kumbaya and, you know, stare at the wall. Mindset training can be a very active process. It can be, again, working on that verbal self-talk. Often my mindset training involves me speaking affirmations or self-talk into the room because I am a fast thinker. And if I'm trying to slow down my thinking, I actually have to externalize it. I actually have to write it down or I have to speak it into the room. Even, you know, often I'm in my office by myself right now. Sometimes if I have self-talk that's kind of not serving me, I need to rewire my self-talk by speaking new self-talk into the room, but I need to make the internal external in order for it to be effective. So once I started learning some of what I would describe as actionable mindset techniques and started to study the science, the data that supported how these things created elite performance, how they reduced burnout, how they improved retention, how they improved sales, right? Once I started to see all the relationship between the way these tactics worked and the things that I was trying to accomplish in my life, I'm like, why wouldn't I try them? Right. So I started trying mm -hmm. them my way. And all of a sudden I started reaping the benefits and this was the fundamental shift. I'm like, people think this is just a quiet, you know, solitary mindfulness practice, but mindset training is so much more than that. It is such an active process. If you engage in it in a way that serves you, and you will see the results. Like you will, you just have to be willing to try. So if you're a skeptic, I was too. I was too. And I'm, I'm a case study in find your own way and you'll see the results. Yeah. I mean, that's it right there. That's, uh, that's the reframe, the sexy reframe mm -hmm. of mental health. Cause that's what it is, yeah. right? Like all of these skills that you're talking about are learnable, trainable skills. And you just put in yeah. The sets and reps you want to be calm under pressure you want to be able to recover from a mistake quicker you want to be able to uh, you know get present you want to have a stress reduction tool that's actually you can do in the moment that's not like something mm -hmm. you do later but like right now like all of these things yeah. are just learnable trainable skills just like you learned how to read write and speak right you just have to work at them over and over and over and over and over again and then you know, they become part of your being, you still have to remind yourself to do it, especially when you have maybe some internal dialogue that's a little defeating. You're like, oh, yeah, is that really true? Okay, let's let's try to flip that and, and move from right. there. And so I think that's that's quite important and powerful for basically every person that exists in the world. Yeah, I think most people too, to your point about that, I think there's a limiting belief about time, right? Like kind of bringing it full circle to the beginning. They're like, well, you know, training my body in the gym, that takes time and training, you know, these skill sets takes time. Mindset training takes time too. But here's the funny thing about mindset training. It is just as effective in micro doses as it is in a one hour training, in a two hour training. What's cool about mindset training is once you've learned it, you can squeeze it into the cracks of your day extremely easily, as long as you make it a priority. And a lot of mindset training is real time, right? Like you get to exercise these little things in real time. So once you've got a toolkit, it's as simple as reaching into the bag. So, you know, for those who are concerned, if I prioritize this type of training, you know, this is what my partnership with Limitless Minds is what we do. We bring it to the corporate space. It's for the corporate athletes. People worry. These are busy leaders, busy sales professionals, mindset training. I don't have time for that. Good news. You make it a priority early 
you learn some fundamentals and then squeezing it into your day is seconds at the most minutes, you know, mindset training is one of those things that has huge exponential ROI, but unlike having to go to the gym and lift for half an hour or 40 minutes, you can squeeze these 30 seconds here, 60 seconds there, but it has measurable benefit the same way a one hour workout at the gym does. So that's, that's a little bonus about brain training. It has a, a lot faster ROI and much less time. Yeah. Fantastic. That's yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I, yeah, wholeheartedly on board with that. But to yeah. make a quick little pivot here, you wrote a yeah. book called Good Awkward. And before we get into some of the, the stuff that's in that book, mm -hmm. do you feel like an author? Oh, they're going to ask me something very different. I do now. You know, I think there's a, listen, if you've written a book, you're an author. And people 100%. could tell me that. People could tell me that over and over, though. Um and I think there's always part of you after the first time you've done it to say, you know, do I feel like a real author though? I do feel like a real author. My, my book is now in like Barnes and Noble stores and my friends are taking pictures of it and going, oh my gosh, it's here next to Brene Brown, right? So increasingly I do. And now that, you know, the book just launched last week, so it's just getting to people's hands that pre-ordered it. And uh, I'm noticing how it's changing people's aperture on this idea of awkwardness and the, the, the insights that they're getting. And that makes you feel like, you know, there's words on the page here that aren't just paper, right? It's actually having impact on someone. And so, yeah, I think, it, you know, you asking me that today, I know I'm an author, which feels really nice to be able to own that. Probably wouldn't have said that a couple of months ago, but yes. Incredible. Well, congratulations yeah. on job well Thank done. Thank you. Thank and you. Uh, speaking of being awkward, mm -hmm. Is it yeah. a state or a trait? Uh, depends who you are and how you're using it. So my preferred way of looking at awkwardness is a, as a state. So states, you know, states, it's an emotional state. It's transient. It's temporary. So awkwardness as an emotional state means I feel awkward right now. I just had an awkward conversation. I'm about to enter an awkward negotiation. It's something that's temporary that we generally, you know, depending on the situation at hand, can move through. Sometimes we feel awkward just for a fleeting moment. We feel embarrassed for a fleeting moment, or sometimes even that feeling will linger for a while, right? We think about it in the car later. We think about it in the shower later, but it's still temporary. Other people will use the word to describe themselves as an identity. I mm -hmm. am awkward. Aaron is so socially awkward. You're not, but right, you know, we will use <laughs> it as a, as an identifying characteristic about the type of person that we are. My preference always is to think of it as a state. And the reason for that is by definition, there is no such thing as a factually awkward person. Awkwardness is subjective, meaning it is not a statement of fact, it is a statement of opinion. There's no such thing as a factually awkward person. So when we describe a person as awkward, it is up to us or someone else to deem them so. But there's no such thing as a factually awkward person. So if we start with that knowledge, that awareness, it gives us a little bit more permission and freedom to embrace these feelings, feeling a bit more empowered. Because when it's a, a trait, when it's an identity characteristic, it becomes a box that we put ourselves in. I'm an awkward person, therefore, I'm not going to go to that networking event. I'm an awkward person, therefore, I'm not going to raise my hand to give the presentation. I'm not going to take the chance. And that's limiting to our growth. So I prefer that people think of it as a state 
Because again, you are not factually awkward. If you've been calling yourself that your whole life, all good. I'm not mad at you. Just know that it's not a statement of fact. It's a feeling. Mm -hmm. Do you think that some people claim it as an identity so that sort of as a defense mechanism? So maybe they, they, they tell everyone up front, yo, I'm really awkward all the time. And they mm -hmm. say that weird thing that's like, sort of gets a laugh, but it's kind of cringy. They have this like yeah. thing to fall back on like, hey, I told you that I was really awkward. And so it just like forces them maybe not to grow or change or figure out why they do the thing they're doing. Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it a couple different ways. You know, one is a one I don't mind, right, which is this owning our own awkwardness as a form of confident self-deprecation, right? So I, I don't mind if, you know, I, I'll walk into a room sometimes and be like, God, I'm the most awkward, right? But I am saying it in a, in a tongue-in-cheek way, you know, in a relatable way, and I'm also not letting it stop me from taking the chance anyway, right? Mm. I have a mantra, do it awkward, but do it anyway. I will never be the picture of grace. I am just, you know, when I laugh really hard, I cackle, I snort, like it's a mess, right? This is just, it's who I am, but I own it. I lean into it. Now, there are other people who will use it as a, a crutch or a reason to avoid, right? Mm. Like, I, I, I'm not the one to give that group presentation. I'm way too awkward. No way, right? Like, I, I'm too awkward to be the one to do that. That then becomes a limiting belief. It is no longer a kind of relatable self-deprecation declaration. It is a, I'm saying this, so I don't have to do that. It becomes a form of self-handicapping where we essentially don't you know allow ourselves to enter that situation because then we don't have to find out if we can do it we don't have to find out if we're any good so really just depends how you use the term would be my answer yeah that makes sense because any any time really we we wrap ourselves in one identity we don't allow ourselves to, to you know to branch out into into many different beings or claim to be able to be many different things. Uh, and so if you're only just an awkward person, then anytime you do something awkward, you're like, see, I told you this is like who I yeah. am. Right. Uh, instead right. of it just it, it being becomes, like... It becomes an identity crutch, right? Like, mm -hmm. it, didn't I already tell you? Didn't I already warn you? And that's dangerous, right? That's so dangerous to our growth when we create excuses for who we are before we even have a chance to discover who we are or who we want to become. It's it's limiting. Yeah. Um, one of the things I heard you say that I that I really liked and wanted some further explanation on was yeah. this thing you said called confidence lives in the land of awkwardness. Can you can you mm -hmm. explain that? Yeah. I mean, here's this a fun in the research, this fun truth emerged. The most confident people we know have not cracked the code on how to eliminate awkwardness. Right? We see them and we're like, they never feel awkward about anything. They just, they're so sure of themselves. They've got this. But here's, by definition, what's true about awkwardness. So, so my working definition of awkwardness is when the person we believe ourselves to be, our true self, is momentarily in a gap between the person that other people see on display. So we feel awkward when the person we believe ourselves to be, our true self, is at odds with the person that for that moment they see on display. For example, um, you know, I'm hanging out with a group of friends. I am singing a song lyric of a popular song we all love. And I sing the song lyric totally wrong. And everyone's like, what? Hannah, what the hell did you just say? Right? I'm embarrassed. I feel awkward. 
the person I believe myself to be, somebody who like knew this song or, you know, part of the group is suddenly at odds with the person just for a moment that they saw on display. We feel embarrassed. We feel awkward. We feel cringe. Sometimes it's, you know, much worse than that. Often it can be fleeting, right? It depends. But there's this gap space. And the truth of the matter is awkwardness exists in uncertainty. We cannot engineer how people will react to us. We cannot engineer life. We can't always plan for, hey, I'm walking down the street. I'm going to trip over the crack in the sidewalk. We can't always engineer, hey, I'm going to raise my hand at work and suggest this idea. We don't know how it's going to land until we find out how it lands, right? There's other people in that room. So we cannot engineer the awkwardness out of life because that means getting rid of uncertainty, which most people have not figured out how to do. So when we think about confidence, the people that we perceive as confident are not people who have learned how to eliminate awkwardness. Instead, they run into it when they see it arrive. They go into situations where awkwardness is nearly guaranteed. And when they do experience it, which will happen to every single one of us, they have developed mindsets and tools and strategies for how to respond to those in the moment very quickly and move on. That's what we look at as confident. Those people are so confident because they don't linger in it. They don't let it freeze them in an action. They don't ruminate on it. They just move on. And we look at them as they're, they're confident. It's, it's hand in hand. We don't get to detangle them. That, that tracks really well for me because I, I think of confidence as having intense trust in oneself. Mm -hmm. And so if I have intense trust in myself and I go and I have this awkward encounter, like it doesn't phase me that much because I have this intense trust in myself that I can right. overcome it or that I can continue moving yeah. forward or that I can pivot from it or I can adjust from it. And so it, uh, it makes sense to me that a confident person would be able to embrace their sort of awkwardness, which really means that they're embracing their uniqueness or their authenticity about themselves or the little blunder that yeah. they made um, because, you know, everyone makes blunders or have, has mistakes, right? But the confident person is able to overcome them. So it, it attaches to, to awkwardness you know, really well. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. The, the addition I would make on this too is it's also the confident person isn't afraid of repetitions. So mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I was very intent on writing this book right now is, you know, we live in a world that is optimized for social smoothness, right? We don't even have to interact with each other that much anymore. We order our, you know, DoorDash online. We don't like call the restaurant anymore. You know, I, I saw the, a meme going around that said, um, all the doorbell companies are going out of business because we just text here, right? Like here, I'm in the driveway. We don't ring the doorbell. We don't knock on the door. You know, I, I was born in the early eighties where we had to get up in front of the class and sharpen our pencils. Apparently like the teachers do it now at the beginning of the class, right? This is, there's so few opportunities now for social mishap that we now don't have the practice in these kind of social blunders that we used to have more often and more naturally. We just don't have to talk to strangers that much anymore. And so what happens is these muscles weaken. These are specific mental muscles. They're social mental muscles, like every other mental muscle, that when they're not used regularly, they can atrophy, they can weaken. So now in this modern era that we live in, we actually have to be all the more intentional about creating opportunities, not only to flex, you know, just general mindset muscles, but specifically the social ones, because the world keeps optimizing away from them. But unless you either work by yourself entirely, I don't know many jobs that are entirely by themselves, unless you're like an astronaut, right? Most jobs you interact with people, most athletics teams, you interact with people. 
So keeping your social muscles strengthened is a competitive advantage right now. And it's one that the world is not making easy for us. So we actually have to over-index on being intentional with those reps, putting ourselves out there a little bit more than the world wants us to do. Yeah. I don't want to be part of a world where relationships aren't paramount, like real, of course, yeah, in-person, honest relationships. And I, I, yeah, I see us moving away from that in a very um, disheartening direction, and yeah. and creating those beautiful relationships is is sort of you know showing our ass a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you mean like yeah. like this? When I was a professional wrestler, this was paramount to getting the fans either to dislike you or like you. It was called slipping on the banana peel. If all mm. they saw was you be perfect all the time, they're like, yep. I, I, I can't relate to this person who I'm supposed to either yeah. love or dislike. I have to see them fall, trip, make a mistake. Like, and we're, we're performing. So normally when sure. we do that, we're doing it on purpose. Sometimes like it's right. a real freak accident and it's like bad, but we're trying yeah. to slip on the banana peel on purpose to get the fans either to love us a little bit more or to laugh at us if I'm the bad guy. Oh, that guy, <laughs> he fell down. I don't like him. I hope the good guy beats him up now or the good guy mm -hmm. falls or he, you know, that makes people want to love you more because they see this yeah. human part of you. Not that you're just like this robotic person who does everything right all of the time. Like, of course, we yeah. want to strive for excellence to be great. But like of part of that is, is, again, slipping on the banana peel or showing our ass. And it's yeah. how you respond to that that i think then will either uh get people on your side or sort of maybe turn people away from you yeah i love i love this and i'm gonna i'm gonna nerd out on you for a minute so you know what you're describing as the the showing your ass or slipping on the banana peel in you know what's sort of understandably a performance environment in the business context there's actually a name for this in the book i call it uh or not i call it i i go into the research from elliot aronson they call it the pratfall effect which is exactly what you're describing which is if there's somebody in the business context who is generally seen as smart competent capable right we generally look at that person as they know what they're doing when they have a blunder when they spill coffee all over themselves when they say the wrong name when their slides say the wrong thing there's actually something in social psychology that says when they commit a blunder, we like them more for it because essentially it knocks them off this proverbial golden pedestal we've put them on of this untouchable, perfect, so smart, so competent, and it humanizes them. It humanizes them. And so I don't suggest purposely dumping a coffee into your lap, but just understand that if people generally look at you, you know, in your wrestling days, if people generally looked at you as like, Aaron's a pretty good wrestler, he knows what he's doing and you slipped on the banana peel, it did exactly that. It humanizes you. That exact phenomenon translates to the workplace and is supported by, by social science. I think what people worry about, and, and maybe you worried about this in those early days, is they worry that that awkwardness or blunder could somehow be perceived as ineptitude or mm -hmm. weakness, or they don't know what they're doing. But often that is not the case. If you have sort of shown your capabilities generally ahead of that time, it actually has the opposite effect. It has a positive byproduct, which is that likability and warmth. Yeah. I was worried about it as a wrestler before I had built up my credibility. Sure. Yeah. Understandably. You know, and I think that's the I, case I think, in business too, right? Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's what I would say. Like if a public speaker is going out there and it's like they're brand new and they just like just they're un they're unprepared. They don't have their things figured right. out. They're not sophisticated with their language. 
no one's going to be like, we love you for it. They're like, I didn't get any information from this and it just doesn't make sense. Uh, go back to the drawing board, come back in a couple of years when you're credible and you have your shit figured yeah. out. Then if you have yeah. this sort of blunder, then we're like, oh, great. Yeah, you're a human person just like me. I stumbled over my words in mm -hmm. my sales meeting, but I still got my point across and made the sale or yeah. whatever. So yeah, in front of, you know, I was wrestling in front of like one to five people at the start. So it wasn't, you know, that <laughs> yeah, no big deal. <laughs> right. It wasn't that big yeah. of a deal in, in front of the family of four in the barn in Oklahoma, but it still felt like the whole world was on my shoulders. Yeah. And I think this is important too. You know, some of that comes with time, but even if you are newer to, you know, a corporate organization an athletics team, if generally people can look at you as they, they're trying their butts off, right? Like I agree with you. I, you know, when I'm talking about mistakes or blunders, there's a difference between somebody who's clearly underprepared and makes a mistake. And then we can tell as, as humans, we can look at somebody else who's like, they've been busting their butt preparing. And that was just a human mistake, right? We know the difference. Like, I think sometimes people worry, will one look like the other? Generally, we can tell the difference between someone who is unprepared and winging it and, and creating mistakes on that account versus someone you can tell has been putting their heart and soul into this and had just a human moment. And I think we have to give people credit for being able to discern that difference because they generally can. Yeah, we're, people are smart and they, yeah. they can just, they can tell. What do you... Yep. <clears throat> um think about the difference between you know feeling discomfort and and feeling awkward is there a big difference mm -hmm. how do you how do you parse the two yeah awkwardness is an emotion of discomfort right so it lives in the same place that maybe vulnerability anxiety fear right there's a number of uh emotions of discomfort that all live in that category where discomfort is a little bit more of a broad bucket Awkwardness exists in a very specific way. So awkwardness, I mentioned briefly, is a social emotion, meaning if you are working on a voice memo at home and you pronounce somebody's name wrong, but nobody was there to hear you, you don't really feel awkward about it because you're by yourself, right? So awkwardness uniquely exists when other people are around. It's a social emotion. We're scanning for other people's approval when we feel awkward. We're like, do I belong? Do I fit in? Because essentially what's happening is, again, that person that we believe ourselves to be, the expectations of this interaction went sideways. You know, somebody either didn't respond the way we thought they would, or it, the thing I said didn't land the way that I thought it would, right? So there's always an other involved. So that's where awkwardness is a bit unique. It's also in that category of emotions that, again, it, it can have a varying level of grip. So, you know, I talk about embarrass, embarrassment and cringe as well. Embarrassment generally is fleeting and it's generally shared. It's something that when we embarrass ourselves, we usually don't ruminate on it forever because embarrassment can be generally quick. And we kind of look at the other person as like, you've been there. You know, everybody's embarrassed themselves at some point. Awkwardness, again, it depends. Sometimes it can be that fleeting. Sometimes, again, we use it as a crutch as, you know, I don't want to enter this networking event. I don't want to go introduce myself to that person standing over there. And I think what becomes important about this is, it's a very unique type of discomfort that can be remedied through social repetitions, mm. right? Other types of clinically diagnosed anxieties or fears. Sometimes we can work on those at home alone with our self-talk, with our therapist. Awkwardness is one that we can only condition with other people around <laughs> because it's a social emotion. And I think that's what makes it unique and something that requires its own set of tools and strategies. Yeah, this is where this idea of improv, you know, comes into play, I think, mm -hmm. really well. I yeah. took 
mm, eight weeks of improv uh, yeah. at the very beginning of my professional wrestling career. Um, yeah. And it was one of the best things that I ever could have done um, because there's a lot of improvisation in a professional wrestling match. A lot of people think the whole thing is planned out, but a lot of it is us feeding off the crowd. Like, what are they yep. reacting to? What are they not reacting to? Should we cool it down here so they can rest? How can we ramp it back up? And you're basically saying yes and the whole time. Yes and, yes, yes. and. Because if I say no to my partner, then I'm getting dumped on the back of my head and I might have, you know, serious things might happen. So I'm going yeah. with the flow. I'm moving with his body. Right. And the same thing with improv. Like, that's you're basically just trying to show your ass the whole time you're in improv and get mm -hmm. comfortable with it. Get comfortable just saying stuff about this orange that you think you're just trying to make up in your head or someone's talking <laughs> right, about right. this imaginary person. Like, so I think that's a really key point that you make is that, you know, we have to practice that and improv is a way yeah. to do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, to kind of bring that full circle, you can't improv alone. Like there's no such thing as practicing improv by yourself. And people get confused <laughs> when they hear improv because they think of, you know, improv as comedy. And I always try to make that distinction. This is not stand up comedy. Stand up comedy, you can practice in front of the mirror by yourself. Improvisation is being agile to the person or persons in the moment, right? It's the yes and. It's okay, I don't know what's about to come at me next, but I'm going to be prepared to stay on my feet and roll with it. And improv specifically, it doesn't have to be about the haha -ha funny. It's just about that mental flexibility, that agility. And, you know, at Limitless Minds, one of my teammates, Travis Thomas, he trained, um, you know, in improv and he has a troupe now in South Florida that he does, where this is to me one of the key tenets of psychological flexibility and mental fitness in the workplace is how do we release expectations? Because one thing that is going to be 100% certain is uncertainty. We cannot predict how people will react. We cannot predict where the world is going to go. But what we have the power to strengthen is that ability to stay in uncertainty and handle it when it comes. It will feel awkward. It will feel cringe occasionally. You might embarrass yourself. That's part of the territory. If you have figured out how to ex escape all of those emotions, again, you've cracked a code that has been centuries in the making, right? But none of us can. None of us will. So better to develop a toolkit and a skill set that can support us when those moments inevitably come. And I, I love that improv was part of your wrestling training. I think that that's so much at the heart of what makes people in professions like that fun to watch because it doesn't feel overly engineered. It is in the moment. You know, of course there's some theatrics, but it's in the moment and we enjoy that about it. We can feel it. Yeah. I mean, it's helped me in every aspect of my life. You know, at that point, everything I wanted to be was professional wrestling. I didn't know that I was going to have a podcast and talk to sure. an author about being awkward, but how great it's helped <laughs> yeah. me, helped me sure, in this yeah. moment just to be able to flow with the conversation and not have like preconceived questions. I have ideas, but like, where are we going sure. with it? Okay, cool. Let's follow that path. And yeah. um, the last thing I want to ask you is about a phrase you have, which I think is incredibly cool called gifts in the garbage. Uh, mm, I thought that was mm -hmm. awesome. And yeah, I think I'm going to use it and I'm going to talk to my players about it. But can you, can you explain <laughs> what that is? Yeah, I, I want to give credit where it's due. I think I heard another speaker, I want to say it was Craig Valentine, that uh, he's like a Hall of Fame speaker that had said it one time. And I loved it because essentially it just points to looking for the good in what we perceive to be the bad. So again, to, to put a little bit of psychology spin on it, there's a, a researcher and professor out of Northwestern um, named Dan McAdams, and he refers to this idea of redemption stories and contamination stories. So sometimes when a situation goes sideways, we tell ourselves a contamination story. For example, okay, in your you know baseball days, I had a, a zero for four and you're like, you know what? This was terrible. 
I, I really, I don't even want to do this next game. It's going to suck, right? A situation that was bad kind of contaminated the next situation. It's mm. the, the mindset was polluted by that versus a redemption story is you can take something that was bad and find the good, right? Yeah, that wasn't the outcome that I wanted, but there was this one piece of feedback I got from the coach that I really hadn't thought of that was really useful that I'll use next time, right? Or I learned something about how I might've done something differently, seeking the good. And so I love the way of thinking about this is looking for the gifts in the garbage. We're going to have garbage at bats, whether it's at work or in baseball, right? We're gonna have garbage hours, garbage minutes, garbage days, but within every one of those, is a gift, but it's not going to just bubble up to the surface. We do need to look for them. Sometimes they're at the surface. Great. Those days are easy, easy pickings, right? But more often than not, we have to go searching and that requires slowing ourselves down and intentionality. So back to what I said earlier, I can't just quickly think about whatever gift was in the garbage in a tough situation because my mind is already too quickly wanting to go to the next thing. I need to either write it down or speak it into the room. Those are my techniques for slowing my thinking down and really zoning in on what was the gift here. But if I quickly move through it, I don't get the benefit of whatever that situation was. And I think there's so much power in being able to slow your thinking down just long enough to do that, especially if, in, if the outcome that you're looking for is elite performance. We can't skip that work. We think we're too busy. We think we're moving too fast. But that's where the, that's where the gold is. We can't skip that work. Yeah. That's beautiful. Fantastic framework. Gifts in the garbage. I love it. Love it. The, yeah. My team is going to learn that very, very soon. So. <laughs> love it. Um, I have uh, one more question to ask you. And sure. it's, it's stolen from my, fam- my favorite podcaster, Tim Ferriss. So maybe when uh, you get on, you get on, his, you get on <laughs> his show, uh, he'll ask you the same question and you'll be already prepared to answer it. But uh, what um, would you put on a billboard that would be seen by millions of people every single day? I love Tim Ferriss and I love when he asks this question and I have have an easy answer. My mantra of the last few years that has served me very well is do it awkward, but do it anyway. So many people that leave their dreams sitting on the shelf because they're waiting to be ready and they're waiting to get it right. And they are so worried about what other people think. Just do it awkward, but do it anyway. If you do that, you'll be so amazed at what comes on the other side. My, My dreams have come true by living that. Yeah. It reminds me of Brene Brown's stay awkward, stay brave, stay kind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and she's, she's, uh... she's a big inspiration for the work. You know, I remember her saying that and I'm like, tell me more about this stay awkward part. <laughs> and then I couldn't, couldn't find anything. So she really has been a big catalyst for my own deep dive into this. Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I have one thing to sort of share with you a more personal level that yeah. I, I felt sort of, um, inclined to tell you and I don't know if it really is going to make sense but I'm going to say it anyways so I was listening to you on another podcast and you talked about um, Miss Marvel you watched the show on Disney Plus and you felt um, that you related to that character really well yeah (laughs) Um, based on you know her awkwardness but having this sort of inner power Um, and my sister who passed away uh, five years ago her favorite superhero was Miss Marvel and Mm. I have pictures all over my house of Miss Marvel and some that she drew, some that she bought. I also have the same little action figure that sits behind mm-hmm. me. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I just wanted to say even before we had this conversation that I felt sort of uh, spiritually connected to you. And 
uh, made me think of my sister in a really mm. positive light, which I always do. So I appreciate you giving me that opportunity. And uh, I just wanted to share that. Oh, that warms my heart. I, I believe in my bones that the universe puts people together on purpose. And so if I bring any of the the virtue and, and values that your sister brought to this world through this conversation, then I, I feel very grateful and blessed for that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, thanks for this conversation. Everyone go buy the book. Everything's linked in the show notes. Mm -hmm. If you want more of Henna, all of her information, website, book, Instagram, LinkedIn, all that good <laughs> stuff. And uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It was fun. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to that episode. What idea stood out to you the most? What idea resonated with you most deeply? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporter via Patreon. Patreon directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, you are loved. So click the link in the show notes, scroll through all the tiers, and see which one might work best for you. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.